One of the things that I am very aware of as a pastor is you come into Sunday mornings and there are things that maybe you want to say, uh, but feel like God doesn't want you to say, uh, or there's things that maybe you don't want to say and feel like God wants you to say them. And so I'm very aware that uh, God has called me to to try to discern what he wants. And as I look at what I feel led to talk about, I admit that internally it feels a little heavy and weighty hearing what all the church is facing. Um, It's not what I would have picked and said, yeah, that's exactly what I'd like to talk about two weeks before Christmas while the church is going through hard things. But regardless, it is what I feel led to look at. So I want to just give you a little bit of a picture of where we're headed. I'd like to do a little review of what I had talked about the last time. And then we're going to look at uh, some theology that can feel heavy. It can be hard to accept, but I think is very hopeful. And because it tends to be something that people react to, I'm going to stop and actually talk about some of the objections that people have to it. And then I want to end with where we apply that. And I hope and believe that as we apply the theology, it actually helps us in these very difficult times. So that's, I guess that's my prayer as we go into this. Um, And so when I had preached the last time, uh, a few weeks back, we looked at the the doctrine of of non-resistance and not returning evil for evil, and that God has called us to love all people, including our enemies. We had looked at uh, the story of Peter. Peter was the man in the garden that took his sword and took his best shot at defending Jesus, and Jesus tells him to put it away, and later Peter writes that we are not called to return evil for evil, but rather to bless that we would inherit a blessing. We looked at Matthew 5, where Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. We looked at Romans 12, where God tells us to not not avenge ourselves, and that we are called to not be overcome with evil, but we're to overcome evil with good. And so we are called to love our enemies. This is not passive. It is anything but passive. And we have lots of opportunity to live this out uh, in our day-to-day lives. Um, but it is difficult because it is not natural. And so uh, I think and believe that Jesus' personal teaching for us is very clear. But when we live that out, uh, and particularly as you run into how do you relate to government, we run into these things that we say, but what about that? And what about this? And so um, the one way to look at this, I talked about this the last time, is when you do a puzzle... You start with the edges, and you put together um, the frame. You begin with what's clear, focus on that, and and fill in from there. So, Lord willing, um, what I'd like to do is just fill in a little more from the frame, um, and that is with the concept of two kingdoms, that God has has clearly spoken that there are two kingdoms um, in the world, and I think and hope that that helps us to apply some of those areas that feel, um, feel fuzzy or difficult. So, and when we talk about this, I I guess probably the most well-known Anabaptist story is of Dirk Willem, um, who was escaping from his captor. His captor fell through the ice. He turned around and helped him out. And in the end, went back to prison and, I believe, uh, lost his life in this story. So today I want to start with another story um, that is set in the U.S. in the 1700s, and um, it is in... Ganadan Hutton? Does that sound right, Wayne? Does that ring a bell with you? Because this is an Ohio town. 
near Coshocton. Are you familiar with that name? Am I saying it anywhere close to right? Okay. So it's the, uh, in this area, there were, uh, there was a group of, of Indians who became believers. There's actually from multiple tribes that became believers. They were Mor uh, Moravian believers who ex embraced uh, non-resistance. And during the revolution in, the, in America, uh, because they wouldn't join either side, they were viewed with suspicion by both. And so one of the things that we need to understand is that non-resistance is often appreciated in peace and attacked in conflict, because how do you know where people stand? So this group of Indians, um, they, yeah, they were viewed with suspicion, and a group of militia from Pennsylvania, ironically the only colony that was established to protect religious freedom, a group of militia from Pennsylvania, came into their territory. They came upon um, the first man that they met was a, a Christian, and they accused them of being spies, which they denied, and they were not spies. Um, they, did, they did eventually murder him, and they went into, uh, into where the rest of the, the Indians were. And there's a lot of details, but in the end, they, gave, they handed in their guns that they used for hunting, handed in uh, their other weapons that, they, that were practical tools, and first of all, told them that they were going to be relocated to an area that was safe. Well, that was not at all what the intent was. Um, they were actually going to be executed. So then they tell the Indians this is what's going to happen. The Indians actually requested that we would like to spend the evening praying and being together before we are executed. And so they did grant them, they did grant them that request. So they spent the evening, uh, the ladies, I think, in one building and the men in another, um, praying and, and singing and encouraging themselves in the Lord. Uh, the militia, there was 18 of the men who said, absolutely not, like, we're not going to do this. And they voted on it, but they were outvoted. Um, so in the morning, they did, uh, they did proceed to actually um, kill all of the, the Indians, Christians, believers that were there. And... There's stories of them continuing to pray and to sing and to try to encourage each other while this was happening. Um, in the end, there were 28 men, 29 women, and 39 children who lost their lives in this, in this situation. Um, here's a picture of a, a monument that's erect, uh, built there, cabins that were put in place to remember this. Several things that stood out, um, this is account from people who were there, writings afterwards. One soldier taunted an Indian by pretending to offer him his hatchet with the word, strike me dead. When the man answered, I strike no one dead, the soldier swung at the Indian, chopped his arm away. All the while, the Indian kept singing a hymn until another blow split his head. And here's the, I guess here's the one that I'd like us to, to get a hold of. This is a, a snippet from a man who wrote about this. He was in the army and he said, I, I can't participate, and he didn't, but he had this to say, uh, looking back on it. One Nathan Rollins and brother, who had a father and an uncle killed, took the lead in murdering the Indians, a Na and Nathan Rollins had tomahawked 19 of the poor Moravians, and after it was over, he sat down and he cried and said, it is no satisfaction for the loss of his father and uncle after all. And you feel the weight of that? Here's a man who experienced tremendous loss and took revenge in his own hands. And at the end, he sat down and he cried because it hadn't done anything. 
had not done anything. And so as we look at this topic, the only way any of this again makes sense is if Jesus takes the punishment for everything that's wrong, if he's king of kings, and if he makes things right one day. And that has to be where our hope is anchored. Um, anytime that we return violence with violence, it's, it's a dead-end street unless it escalates and it doesn't satisfy. So I guess uh, I'd like us just to keep that, um, that in mind, and I'd like to just talk a bit about the two-kingdom concept, how we understand it, um, and look at, look at some scriptures around it. Um, very simple, I guess, illustration to talk about, and I, I recognize we could talk all morning about this, but we're not, and that is just the question of if, if this represents the church and this represents the state or government, how does the church and the state relate? Um, is the church a part of the state? Is which one, where does our primary allegiance lie? What happens when they're at odds? And I will say that all, a lot of the hard things about this teaching is in these areas between the church and the state. How do we understand it? How does this make sense? Um, and so just, I guess, just keep this in mind as, as we go forward. Um, so that's, that's the if this represents uh, the church and this is um, our country, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that in the world, I'm going to say that this square represents the world, and people in the world are divided up all kinds of ways, but we'll say that this represents nations. So right now, there's about 195 different nations in the world, depending how you define it. Um, so we'll just, we'll have that represent how people are divided up, and uh, when it comes to the world's kingdoms, how, how it's looked at. Um, so real quick, why, why are there nations in the world? We're, why are there nations? We're, what's the purpose? Again, this is a huge topic. We're going to go quick, um, and you, yeah, we could talk about a lot of these details along the way. Um, but nations are put in place partially because of man's desire to rule, and to have control. Um, God does have nations in place to punish evil and also to protect good if they, if they do what they are designed to do. So God uses and controls nations, but we have to understand that the pursuit of nations is inherently carnal, and that is hard to accept, but the pursuit of a nation is inherently carnal. Um, and that believers are born into an earthly kingdom, but our primary citizenship lies somewhere else in, in our heavenly kingdom. So, all right, let, enough of an introduction. Let's get into a few scriptures. Um, and I want to just look at our concept of, of God's kingdom um, as we go, go forward from here. The first, in Mark, uh, after John the Baptist's ministry, the first thing that Jesus says that's recorded in Mark is, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus, when he, when he came, he's announcing a kingdom um, that he is establishing, and he is the king, and he is announcing this, and, and the language goes all throughout the New Testament, and we hear it so often, I hope we don't lose the, the power and the weight of it, that Jesus invites us into his kingdom. This is a kingdom that he is establishing. Um, 
thinking about Christmas, the Christmas story, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod understood this. Uh, going forward into Acts 17, after Jesus was going uh, back to heaven, the church um, is being attacked. Here's what they said about, um, about Paul. These, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So clearly, um, Jesus is Lord, he is king. And even the phrase, um, Jesus is Lord, would have at that point been a challenge to, to the political system. So in Rome, people would have said, had to say, Caesar is Lord, or that's what would have been expected. And for our kingdom, Jesus is Lord, and we enter the kingdom through a new birth, and it is a spiritual kingdom um, of following him. Colossians also talks about this. What does it mean to be in God's kingdom? Colossians 1, 12, and 13. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God has, he has qualified us to share in his inheritance, and he has actually moved us out of one domain into his kingdom, into the kingdom of his dear son or his beloved son. Jonathan Lehman points out that all of the pictures that are used to describe the church like a bride or a building, they're metaphorical, they're metaphors, but the kingdom is actually is a true reality that the church is God's kingdom on earth and God's kingdom is here, but we look forward to um, in heaven when it will be fully expressed. All right, John 18 gives us a really good picture of of Jesus' kingdom and the, the different nature of his kingdom and how his kingdom functions compared to kingdoms of the world. John 18, Jesus is before Pilate, and uh, I'll jump in in verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus clearly is king, and he's saying his kingdom, while it exists in the world, is not of the world. And he says, If it was, my servants would be fighting. They would be fighting right now to try to protect uh, the kingdom using physical force. So God's kingdom is here, but it's eternal, and it doesn't operate the way that worldly kingdoms and earthly kingdoms do. God's kingdom does not advance through physical violence or conflict. Uh, there's a story that, that kind of amuses me in Luke 9, where Jesus is he's headed to Jerusalem, and he's going through Samaria, and he wants to stop at this village, but they figure out that he's going to Jerusalem, and they say, no, they're not going to accept him here. And so two of the disciples very kindly offer, they say, Lord, do you want us just to call down fire from heaven and zap these people just like Elijah did? I mean, what an offer. Jesus needs help with this. And he turns around and rebukes them. And some manuscripts would say that he says that, no, the Son of Man did not come to destroy lives, but to save lives. And just clearly showing what... What the, um, what the nature of God's kingdom is like. 
So we are not fighting physical battles. Um, the kingdom is under attack, but we must realize that we are not fighting people. We are never called to fight people. We are called to fight evil. Um, I won't read this, but Ephesians 6 um, brings that out, that we, are wrestling, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So we, are, we all are engaged in a conflict, but our weapons are spiritual, and we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Um, also in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, that seems wrong. I think it might be 3, but anyway. Um, it's talking about, um, again, as believers, how does God's kingdom advance? Does it advance through physical conflict? And verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So I hope that you hear that we are in a war and God does call us to engage evil, but our only weapon is good and love and the gospel of Christ. <clears throat> I want to share a quote um, from Herman Hoyt. This is actually coming through the navigators who are not necessarily, as an organization, don't necessarily hold um, non-resistance as a belief. But I thought this was rather insightful. He says, what has been true in using force to extend the church has also been true when the church joined the nations of the world in the exercise of force. This situation has produced an incongruity that has aroused criticism even from unbelievers. If believers belong to the kingdom of Christ, then they do not belong to the kingdom of the world. And if it is wrong for believers to employ physical force to advance spiritual interest, then it is also wrong for believers to join the world in the use of physical force to achieve temporal interests. The words of Christ come with tremendous power at this point. If my kingdom were of this world, from this world, my followers would be fighting. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. I thought that brings a lot of clarity to the matter of how do Christians relate to, to conflict um, among nations and in the world, and can we participate as a follower of King Jesus in living out um, the rules of his kingdom? I was thinking a bit about you know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But when it comes to dealing with, with nations, almost all the weapons they have are destructive and in nature where you know, they use, they're used to punish people or to basically convince people to not, uh, to not do things. To put this in perspective, um, I was just thinking about the wars that have, fought, have been fought in the 20th century. So from 1900... To, 2000, um, to the year 2000. Any ideas how many people died in war in the last 100, well, the 100 years um, of the 20th century? It's tragic. 160 million people died in the 20th century. And to put that in perspective, the U.S. population is at 329 million now. So if, if you imagine half of the U.S. gone, that's the total loss of life in one century of war. Um, I was thinking about this century even, which has been relatively peaceful compared to that one. And still, two million people have died. So if you were to take all of the population of Fauquier County and Prince William County, that's about a quarter of the people who have died in war uh, since the year 2000. 
So it's pretty clear that violence doesn't, is not the answer if you want to just um, look at it from that perspective. Another thing I think that we have to be honest about is that nations can never meet man's needs, their truest, deepest needs. And please hear me, I am very grateful that I live in the U.S. We are incredibly blessed, among the most blessed people in all of history. But yet the U.S. cannot meet people's deepest spiritual needs. If nations could truly meet people's needs, they would be designed to last almost indefinitely. Um, it's just interesting. If you look at how long nations last, the longest last about a thousand years. The shortest have been a couple of hours. They're not, they're not, they don't last. They're not eternal. Um, think about our country. We had a nation that split off and operated on their own. They lasted for four years and 750,000 people died trying to sort through whether they were going to be a nation or not. Um, 100, about 150 to 170 years ago here. I want to just, uh, and I'm not a historian, so please hear me, is this, just to visualize the, I guess the, um, how short nations last. Here's a map of Europe. And if you have 12 minutes this afternoon, you can look this up on YouTube. It's actually rather fun. It goes year by year um, through, through a map of Europe. So um, in 393 BC, this is just, and look over here on the left. These are the countries and the populations. And I'm just going to pick a couple snapshots to, to go forward. So, you know, we jump forward to 391. Of course, you have the Roman Empire there, huge. Uh, jumping to 1,000. Do you see how all this changed in 600 years? Look at the change there. Uh, jump forward to 1,500. Again, look at all that change. Some of these things, we, unless you're really into this stuff, we would hardly even recognize um, the names and, and who, you know, who all the countries were. So I... Back about 120 years ago, this is how Europe looked. And then in 2017, that's how it looked. So just look at the change there. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to be depressing in covering these things. What I am trying to say is that putting our hope in these things is not what God designed. God designs for our hope, our citizenship, our all to be based in heaven and to put our our entire life and our allegiance there and trust him to guide us as we relate to these things. And I think, to me, as I look at this, if I were to invest um, you know, my life in some of these things, it would feel so temporal in, in the light of eternity. Another thing that I think we have to keep in mind as we consider this, uh, consider the idea of, is it right for a Christian to, to fight in military and those kinds of things, is if we are honest and read through Revelation and read through prophecy, God says that in the end, when Jesus comes back again, all armies of the world will gather to fight against him. And so there will come a day where Christians will not be able to be in the army and be participating in what is happening. And that was kind of a new thought for me that there will be a day where all, it, literally all nations of the world will be gathered with their armies to fight against, against Christ. And that is a very clarifying, a clarifying thing that I think we have to keep in mind. Revelations 9 has this picture of Jesus coming back. 
uh, in verse 15, his, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then a promise um, is that God's kingdom is eternal. We looked at how, how fleeting earthly kingdoms are. God's kingdom is eternal. And in the days of those king, kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So regardless of what is happening on earth, God's kingdom is eternal and will stand forever. So I want to just, I guess, shift gears a little bit. Um, well, I, hope, I hope that you hear me saying clearly that as a follower of Christ, our allegiance is for him, and let's not get, let's not get sucked into involvement in ungodly ways in the kingdoms of the world, but let's keep our hope and our allegiance um, to, to God and to his kingdom. In all of this, we are very definitely called to be respectful, to be grateful, and to honor the kingdoms of the world. I'm not, I hope you don't hear me saying anything. And does that create some tension? Is that uncomfortable? It is. Um, so I just want to stop a little bit and talk about, um, again, some of the alternative views to this. Um, and the, my point in doing this is that I recognize this is very difficult. And I think if you just accept this without actually wrestling with it, I would be a little bit concerned. Um, and so I want to just talk about some of these things briefly, um, and then it is something that I believe that God wants us to process with our King of Kings and ask him how he wants us to live. So uh, real, I guess, again, just real briefly, one of the ways that Christians relate to this is that recognizing that God has established the state, and so then they would see that the church operates here under God's control and, and you know, the, the Beatitudes, but when it comes to the state, it's okay to, to set aside some of the more personal things that we had talked about last week of loving our enemies and those kinds of things. So that is a large, a large way that people handle it. The one thing to keep in mind, at least here in the U.S., is the just war theory is given a lot of credit, and we should be aware of that, and that is basically that if if a certain set of criteria can be met, then nations are justified in going to war. Um, and that, well, it was developed over years and years of history, but would have been pop. Um, Augustine did a lot to develop that. And basically the theory was that, well, Christians can love their enemies by, by going to war against them. Um, and, and he was the first that said, well, it's pretty clear if it's a, a wicked state, but what about if it's a Christian state? Then should, um, should Christians participate? So that's where the just war comes from. And it has things in it like, is this a good cause? Is it the last resort? What's the probability of success? I find that interesting, that to decide if you're justified, you evaluate the probability of success. Another um, approach to this is pacifism. And that is different than non-resistance in that it is um, people who are willing to be active in the government but want the government to try to live like the church. And so they are against um, the government using any, any of the, the sword. Um, and 
when you read Mennonite history, um, Mennonites were pretty united about around non-resistance till around 1950, and that's when the push towards pacifism came in. Interestingly enough, would have been somewhat a following World War I. There would be a reaction and a pool that way. Um, the early church was very united in practicing non-resistance um, until about 100, well, 174 to 300 years um, is where the church, early church would have been united in practicing non-resistance. There is a lot of writing from the early church. I'm actually not going to take the time to read all of, uh, to read all of these. Um, there is an example here of a, of a Roman soldier who chose to leave the army, and again, he, and he paid with his life for that choice. Um, I want to just talk a little bit. So that's, that's how Christians handle it. One of, one of the things that people will just say or in reaction is, well, all that is needed for evil to take over in the world is for good people to do nothing. That's a, I mean, that's a common, common thought, that for good people to do nothing, evil will take over. And one of the things I think we need to be very clear on is that God is not calling us to do nothing. He's actually calling us to do quite a lot, but not uh, rely on the world's way of getting it done. Um, another common objection that you will hear is that essentially you are a freeloader, that there are people who are out defending you know, the country that you live in and that you are, you are freeloading off of that. Does that feel good? <laughs> not at all. And again, the goal is not to, to be a freeloader. Jesus said, well, when, uh, when the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, they were called, seek the good of the city, work for the good where you're at. And so again, we are called to actively engage and to seek good for everybody, um, to not take advantage of what we've been given. Some other objections that come up is just looking through scripture. Didn't Jesus use a whip to clean out the temple? Um, is one that is, that is referenced. Um, yes, he clearly did. Did he whip people? It's not stated that he did. I don't know. Um, so some people would believe he, whipped the, he flipped over tables and whipped the animals. Um, but again, I would call us back to what is, what is clear. Probably the largest um, objection is looking at the Old Testament. How do you make sense out of the Old Testament compared to the New? Um, and again, we could talk all morning on that. We won't. I will just remind us that in Hebrews 7, it says that when, um, when there is a change in the priesthood, that there is actually a change in the law as well. And so Jesus came, he fulfilled the, the first covenant, he fulfilled the law, and he brought, and he brought a new law to love. Um, and again, God didn't change, um, but it was a different covenant designed to do different things, and, and Jesus fulfilled that. So those are some of the objections that we hear, and if I would give you time, um, probably everybody else could add to that list. I want to shift gears again and just, and let's live, how does this look, I guess, practically speaking, and uh, hopefully find a little bit of encouragement here in the end. One of the things I want to remind us is in Philippians 3, at the end of the chapter, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. 
And I think that is packed for what we're talking about. Number one, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where our hope is. That's, we're ultimately responsible to Jesus and, and his kingdom um, above and beyond anything we face here. So we're, our citizenship is there. We're awaiting a savior. He's going to transform us into his glorious body. And again, thinking about all of the health challenges and the things that we're dealing with, there's a lot of hope here. And then in the end, we're reminded that all things are going to be subject to him. So all of the worldly powers we're talking about will one day be subject to Jesus. First Peter tells us this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And I want to just highlight the holy nation that we are called out as a kingdom and a people uh, of Jesus. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So again, we have a hope of, of a kingdom that's not of this world, that's not going to pass away. And the instruction is to live as sojourners and exiles. And so whether we're facing difficult things in life or whether we're trying to figure out how to live out these hard teachings of Christ, we're not home. We are not home yet. And God calls us to live as, as sojourners and exiles. I'm not going to take time to read all of these. Hebrews 10 and 11 talk about the people who lived by faith what allowed them to do that was that they looked forward to their home, which was heaven. Um, Hebrews 10, I do want to just point out that these people were, God enabled them to joyfully accept the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I will tell you the times that I've had things stolen, that is not what happens in my heart from the, uh, from the onset. Um, but if, if our hope is in heaven, he does enable us uh, to live that way and to look forward. Hebrews 11 um, talks about those that looked forward. They knew that God was bringing them a new country and a new city. And so as we consider how do we live this out, let's firmly keep in mind that there are, there are two kingdoms and that our kingdom, our hope, um, is not here. So, and again, very simple, but this is how... This is how the world divides kingdoms. And in a nutshell, what I am saying to you is that Jesus came and there are two kingdoms. Everybody in the world is in one of, one of two kingdoms. There are, we'll just say this side over here is, is people who have accepted Christ and are born again and living in the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is those that are following Satan. So there really are two, two kingdoms. And the thing that we have to keep in mind is that <clears throat> everybody that is over here in God's kingdom started out over here. This was me and everybody in this room started out here and only because of Jesus did he translate us and move us over into his kingdom. And now we are called to live with this as our core. And so how do we relate to those who are not in God's kingdom? And one of the things I think that, that we need to, to think through is that, so using this, let's think about these nations. Let's say that I am with a believer from North Korea, and 
a man from North Carolina that is not saved, where are my primary allegiances and brotherhood going to be? It's, it's not the world anymore. It's where are we at in God's kingdom? And so I think we just, as we wrestle through hard issues, let's keep this in mind that there are two kingdoms. God has moved us into his kingdom. Everything we do has to be um, at his direction. Thinking about uh, heaven in Revelation 7, 9, uh, we are told that there are going to be people from every nation. So no matter how the world divides this up, there's going to be people from every nation. It goes on to say that from every tribe, every people, and every language will be in heaven, and they will all be singing the same song. We will all be singing the same song, worshiping our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. And so as we go through life, we're ambassadors of, of King Jesus. So let's not, get, let's not get sucked into the stuff that distracts us from the kingdom, and hopefully that helps us sort through the hard questions of life, that that's our primary reference point um, is King Jesus. All right. Thank you for listening, um, listening through this. I guess in conclusion, one of the things I want to keep in mind is, again, Jesus' love for me, his pursuit of me when I was his enemy, and that I am called to live that out, even if it's difficult and even if it does not make sense to those around me. Um, would you stand? And I would like to, I'd like to pray and then again uh, read the Great Commission um, as we think about going out and, uh, and following King Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. God, thank you so much for um, changing us, for qualifying us. Even though we were sinful, we were dead in our sins, we were your enemies, Lord, you died for us. You changed us and you brought us into your kingdom. We're gathered here. We recognize you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, we want our, our identity to be a citizenship in heaven. We want our pursuit to be the kingdom of heaven. We want, um, yeah, just to to live according to your word and, and your rule. God, I pray that you would help us to faithfully share your message. God, give us grace to do so. Give us love to do so. And would you draw more people to yourself through those that attend here? Um, and may we grow to be like you. God, I again just commit the church to you. There's many hard things that are going on. Thank you that we can trust you as our king. And would you graciously care for us um, in the challenges ahead? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read Matthew 28, and then you um, are dismissed. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen.